Hey, Queeros, Cameron here. As you know, you can listen to Query for free anywhere you find podcasts. And we love giving you the opportunity to listen to Query for free. But I want to offer another option. For $4.99 a month or $35 a year, you can join Stitcher Premium, where you can listen to an unad-interrupted version of this same show. Not just can you listen to Query without ads, but they also have their own original programming. For instance, there's a new podcast called Freedom, which will feature three of my good friends and also three Earwolf favorites, Scott Ackerman, Lauren Lapkus, and Paul F. Tompkins. These are pals I've known for years and that I really love and they're hilarious. So they usually are on... Comedy Bang Bang or Paul's podcast, Spontanea Nation, or Lauren Lapkus's podcast with special guest Lauren Lapkus, and they do characters. Well, freedom is an opportunity for them to leave their characters at the door and chat to each other like real human beings, where they'll tell stories from their childhoods, make fun of each other, etc. Freedom comes out on March 29th on Stitcher Premium. So again, I just want to mention that you can go to stitcherpremium.com slash freedom, use promo code query and get a free month of listening. And if you like it, you want to stay with Stitcher, you can listen to a brand new episode of Query every week ad-free. Ooh boy, enjoy the show. This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart, and as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback, and I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queeros! It's Cameron here, and oh boy, I've got a great episode of the show today. Brittany Nichols is my guest. Brittany was a writer on Take My Wife Season 2, which, by the way, you can buy on iTunes, Amazon, or Google Play. Brittany's also in a couple episodes, including episode 205, which was directed by Rhea Butcher. Oh, and this conversation, you know, every time I record with somebody, even if it's somebody I know, I feel like... We have a new angle on queerness, and this is a lot about sports and Brittany's experience playing basketball. I I really loved this chat. I also just want to let you know, friends, that I will be in Burlington April 12th through 14th, in Nashville April 18th, and in Huntsville, Alabama April 19th. Those are the upcoming dates that I have that are not currently sold out, so sell me out. Come on, friends. Enjoy the show. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still Hello. Hi. Thank you for rescuing me from the couch where I was laying face down because I, because <laughs> you are not my first episode of the day. <laughs> I'm glad you recuperated. Yeah. No, I just was trying to save it up so that I could position my energy mm-hmm. at your direction. I'm feeling it. Yes. I'm. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, on this show, I have guests introduce themselves. So would you mind introducing yourself? My name is Brittany Nichols. Uh, I'm a comedian and writer and internet person. Mm. Yeah. Internet person. Absolutely. You are. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you were a writer on uh, Take My Wife Season 2. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason that, well, I, of course, knew who you were before that. But I had watched uh, Suicide Kill, your movie, and was like, this is an interesting person who's doing something. Um on their own because talk me through how you made that movie how did you make that movie the way i made that movie here it is mm-hmm. <laughs> let me hear <laughs> lay it out um well i'd wanted to make a movie for a little bit and basically was waiting to have an idea that i thought i could pull off on my own because i always knew i wanted to do it mumblecore style and not a lot of Lighting. We ended up using no lighting, a small budget in, like, one location. Um, I had the idea after I saw Tangerine uh, with Lindsay Hicks, who's also in the film. And we were just, like, chilling in the garage after the movie talking. And we were talking about, like, awkward dinner parties and weird things that had happened to us at dinner parties. And then that conversation just sparked the idea. I went home and wrote an outline for the movie, like, that night. Uh, Worked on it the next day and then like sent it off to a group of friends that I knew I wanted to work with. Everyone really liked the idea and I guess that was our version of pre-production because then we just like decided to make it 
and went and shot it uh, a couple months later, once everyone's schedule had freed up. How many days did you shoot? Uh, We shot five days, five eight-hour days. Five eight-hour days, and then no lights, which is wild. Yeah, I didn't even natural light. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, And then you're shooting off an outline. You're using friends. You're like doing it this very DIY way, Mm -hmm. and I and then you were in like a ton of. The movie was in how many LGBT film festivals? Like, do you even know the number? Yeah, I don't remember. It's like, let's just say mm. 10, like more than that, maybe. Yeah. It was like, I think probably like 30-something. 30-something. Wow. I mean, I think that's, when I saw it, that's part of the my reaction to it was, and it's interesting to hear you say that you were inspired by Tangerine, because I didn't know that. Um, but that's what I was so ins- inspired by about it, was that, like, you were somebody who just made a thing. Like, just the idea that you you can tell, looking at it, that it is, like, a lower-budget movie. And mm-hmm. I think that today that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like, sometimes that's actually – there's cool indie cred in that because mm-hmm. it looks like real life. Yeah. Because it is real. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just, like, stoked that that you were out there making the thing, not, like, just having the idea and then going through a bunch of different gatekeepers and having people tell you no and then you're, like – well, fuck, I have to move home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was because um, I'd seen a lot of like Joe Swanberg and the Duplass brothers had like been doing it that way for a while. Um, and it just was interesting to see who made up Mumblecore because, I mean, Barry Jenkins' like first film was like a Mumblecore. And it was like the only like black Mumblecore film I'd seen. And for the most part, it was just like one singular straight white dude being like, this is my idea and I will do every part of it and every part of it will be like exactly the way that I want it to be. And it felt like just one person having ownership of it. And I was like, okay, well, what would be like the way to queer that style of filmmaking? And for me, it was like, oh, to give like everyone ownership of it. So like to immediately bring in the actors and the DP and the director and all of us have like a say in what this is going to look like. And while I was, like, writing the script, having conversations about, like, okay, how much of this is going to be from the script and how much of this is going to be, like, informed by what you all think these characters are going to be and what sort of choices you all want to make on the day. Um, And so, like, the script was – I can't even remember how long it was, but, like, a a lot – some of the scenes were, like, to the letter of, like, things that I'd written. And then other things were just, like, this is what I think happens in this scene. Okay, here we go. And was just completely improvised. And I think that that just gave us um, a lot of room to operate in a way that those movies, I don't know, operate in. Like, it felt very um, lovingly crafted mm-hmm. <laughs> as, like, a team. Yeah, I mean, you can feel that. I, th- I, I think you can feel that watching it. And also, are there five? There's five cast members because, like, the mm-hmm. couples and then the there's a, another character. Mm-hmm. Um and all of those characters are women and three of them are black women. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, – to your point about, like, who gets to make these movies. First of all, it's, like, a tiny cast, which is also really interesting just to, like, spend that much time with people. Mm-hmm. But then that it's, like, oh, this is mostly black queer women. Like, mm-hmm. that is – I – yes. Congratulations because <laughs> you you actually are the person who made the movie that that's true about. Like, there's, yeah. like – this is the movie that that's true about. It's, mm-hmm. it's fucking cool. So good job. I mostly just wanted to be on the record being like, way to go. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those movies that's like sort of scary to think about because like, I feel like with a lot of movies when it is completely scripted, there's only so much having different people like play the parts can do. Like, obviously there are some actors that are incredible and bring so much to it, but when it's partially improvised, there's just like a level of authenticity to having like a queer woman of color like play that part and get to add her own like I don't know uh, personality, but also experiences and just point of view to it that I think made it really cool. And it was scary thinking about if I hadn't done that, what it how different it would have been. Mm-hmm. It would have been a completely different movie. Yeah. Well, I mean, is that what? Without like this, without sounding like the question that somebody asks you when you're about to graduate from college or high school, <laughs> is th- is that an experience that you would want to try to replicate? Like, was it a, was it an overall positive experience doing mm-hmm. something on your own like that, or would you want to like try to 
mainstream something? Um, I mean, I would like to do a lot of different things, but for me, I think that's still a very valuable way of making a film, and I would do it again 100%. Um, hopefully with a little bit more money because we did all do it for free. Uh, and then, like, at this point, we're only making a profit because we, like, didn't spend anything on it, and that's a huge upside. Um, but I think that just, like, the communal feel of it and the ease of it is, like, not that hard to get black people down for that amount of time and just the, like, spirit of it. I don't know that we'll ever be able to exactly capture it again, but, like, I would like to try, so... Yeah. And then when you're trying to get in rooms and get jobs, Mm -hmm. because prior to making that movie, what was your like experience in the in the business side of the entertainment industry? What had you done before that? I don't even know this question. I definitely look at your resume, but I don't remember what the answer is. (laughs) Um, I I had a web series. Yep. which I I watched. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I had a web series called Words with Girls. Which, again, like the first episode was something that we shot with no money and then used that to raise $2,500, which looking back on it now is still like nothing to then have shot like eight more episodes, seven more episodes or whatever we did. Um, and then I got like Billy on the Street, which was just like a a good comedy cred credit because like everyone loves Billy Eichner so much. Um, and then I'd done like a BET show uh, called... Ugh, what was the name of it? The Experiment, which was like a Monday through Thursday um, variety sort of show. Um, and then I'd done like a, other s- smaller things. I hadn't done a, a narrative room yet, and that was like really what I was shooting for. I'd done Andrew T's pilot. Hmm. Andrew T's also on Earwolf Network mm-hmm. with uh, Yosef Racist, and he had an MTV pilot, and I wrote for that. Yeah, I mean, because I think... I don't know. I just think about like there's so much – there's been so much lip service Mm -hmm. the last couple years about like how do we change the dynamics of rooms. Mm -hmm. And like a huge part of it has to come from folks that are in the position that are hiring to Mm -hmm. want to like look for folks who haven't been in rooms. Mm -hmm. And then I also look at what you did and I'm like, well, holy shit, that's another – that's a great way to make yourself – like an undeniable candidate. Right. You can't like I I as somebody who's hiring to fill a room who hasn't made a feature film can't look mm-hmm. at somebody who's made a feature film and be like, I don't know if you have the experience. Like you actually shouldn't sure plenty of people do. <laughs> well, sure, you can. But I just mean it makes you more it makes you more desirable candidate. Like right, you're making yeah. your you're making your own case. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just really important to see that side of it too. Yeah. And it's a lot goes into it. I mean, like, even though it is just, like, sort of feels like we just picked up and did it, I am very well aware that there are still a lot of people who, like, can't. And I think that that's, like, sort of where the Duplage brothers, like, lose me a little because they're sort of always being like, just pick up a camera and then do it and then it's fine. And it's like, no, it's not. It's still, like, I spent $5,000 on that, which, like, two people that make movies, that is crafty for one day like it's absolutely nothing but for people who are just like on the fucking street hustling it up like I got that money because I like got transparent I did transparent for three episodes in the second season and I used all of that money to make suicide kill like that if I hadn't done that then you know it's just like one person giving you like a smaller opportunity then allows you to create a huge opportunity for yourself but then how many people like didn't aren't doing fucking small co-starring things on shows and don't have that extra money laying around? And it's like I think people a lot of the people just are just like pick up and do it. And there's you had I had so much experience being a PA and being on set and being able to like work for free for a little bit to learn this stuff to be able to like then make my own movie. There's so much like. And I didn't ha- I, like I didn't have a lot of money coming here, but still the even privilege to be like I'm gonna like live, bu- like get by eating peanut butter and jelly and just like walking from place to place. Everybody can't walk from place to place. Everybody can't just like find a spot at the last minute. There's still like an incredible amount of privilege that even goes into making a shitty no budget film. That I think that then when these white dudes are like on their fucking soapboxes, don't acknowledge. And I had friends who also are in the industry and who could direct and edit and shoot for free. Like we, I had a camera already. She was a D, like she's a photographer. Our DP had cameras. Like our other lead actress owns a home, so we got to shoot in a house because she owned it. Like there are all these little pieces of 
like things that we have access to that people don't acknowledge when they keep telling people to just go do it, go do it, go do it. There's still an incredible amount of like luck and pre-positioning and all this sort of shit that goes into it that I think is an important part of the conversation. I love that. I'm so glad that you brought that up because you're right. I I mean, there's totally a chance I could have taken it in that direction. Mm -hmm. And I think what I'm saying is like, it has to, I think that, that there's, there's, I like, I hope we're getting somewhere. Like, Mm -hmm. I hope we are. I don't know at all. Who knows? Who fucking knows? We might be spinning our (laughs) tires. We literally might be spinning our tires. It is impossible to know. But I just look at like, your and my relationship mm-hmm. and like the the how happy that R- Rhea and I were that we were able to hire you because mm-hmm. we were like this is somebody who we know has like wants this right. like like and I just mean like wants it mm-hmm. not like not like is like hey I'm hoping that someday I can get in this thing like mm-hmm. wants it so bad they're putting their own money on the line and so I just think it's like and by the way, like, I was in a very small position of power. You know, I right. wasn't, like, giving you, like, hey, by the way, come right for this, like, the, like, come right for Game of Thrones. Or, yeah. Like, I literally, do, do those writers make money? I literally don't know who makes the most, the most money. NBC, whatever it is. Like, I literally don't know. I don't even know the right reference point to tell you. But, like, I just think that um, it's it was a very interesting thing, like, the hiring on that specific thing. This right. one tiny thing, mm-hmm. to me— felt significant as mm-hmm. a way of like talking about one teeny model of like how this can work, which right. is like looking for people who are trying to put themselves out there. Yeah. And it took like, you know, two extra weeks to try mm-hmm. to ask for like, hey, don't like our production company, right. you know, sends us scripts from mm-hmm. writers that we would, we were like, we want to read queer people. We want to read women of color mm-hmm. like that, like find us those scripts and it takes extra time. Yes. But not. Forever. Right. Like five extra days, five mm-hmm. extra business days. Yeah. But I mean, I think that even you asking for more time is like, there are people who won't even experience that level of discomfort. Like, it's, it's I think there's a lot of people who want to do that. And as soon as they realize it takes extra effort or time or they have to make themselves uncomfortable or any way, in any way or just like, yeah, well, I tried. I mean, I said it. I said sure, it out loud one sure. time and that's an effort, right? Like I think that this, the process of how this happens is so shrouded in secrecy sort of that people don't understand how much effort it actually takes to do these things and to take these steps. And I like feel very lucky that I like know you and Rhea and also know like Laura Morelli, who's also like a person that's close to me. And then I know does those things. And then that's like the end of my list. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, <laughs> and Lauren works on orange is a new black. Is that still what their job was or they have a different job now? Uh, she is doing tales of the city. I think mm. it's called for Netflix, which is a, cool. a queer show. Yeah. And has a whole, an entirely queer. And that's Lauren's. Show. She's show? Uh, show running it, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, it is, it is a small group of people, but mm. <clears throat> it's a. I think like the reason, and again, this is all like very inside conversation, mm-hmm. but the reason that I think it's important to talk about it is because like this is something that affects our community, right? And it doesn't matter what your job is. Mm-hmm. Like if you're somebody who is is in whatever position to do this at whatever your job is. Yeah. You know, like looking, like asking like a a couple follow-up questions Mm -hmm. and knowing like what you want from the candidates. Like I knew the breakdown of diversity numbers that I like that I was shooting for. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean diversity as simple, simplifying it to race. I literally mean like on a lot of different vectors, Mm -hmm. we weren't able to achieve it in disability because Mm -hmm. we were limited. Um, by time, like we just right. couldn't hit that vector. Um, but, you know, I like knew what my goals were and it made it easier to like then find somebody like you who, if I, if I know what I'm looking for, right. like I'm looking for a self-starter who mm-hmm. needs that first narrative room credit mm-hmm. so that then they can get like the next job after me. Like right. I wanted you to get the job after Take My Wife, yeah. <laughs> you know, so that then mm-hmm. you can like have your room and whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, blah. That's our like small social justice segment. <laughs> Today's episode of Query is sponsored by Casper. What? That's right. Casper. 
the sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. Why am I talking about Casper? You know what? Rhea and I, we sleep on a Casper mattress at our house. They've got three different mattress models. They've got the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential. Casper mattresses can be shipped directly to your door in like this teeny box that you open up and then the mattress pops out. It's got free shipping, free returns in the U.S. and Canada. And the best part is that you have a 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. What I'm telling you is that we got a Casper mattress. There was a 100-day risk-free sleep-on-it trial and free returns, and we kept it because I like these mattresses. So I just think you should consider it. You can also get $50 towards a select mattress by visiting casper.com slash query and using query at checkout. That's right, casper.com slash query and put in the offer code query for 50 bones off of your mattress purchase. Today's episode of Query is sponsored by Zola. Zola is reinventing wedding planning and the registry experience to make it the happiest moment of your life. Just kidding. Your wedding's the happiest moment of your life. But they are doing everything they can to make your lives happier. This is how they do it. On Zola, you can register for top brands and also for experiences and cash funds. I like this idea because I have personally had a registry in a place where you could get uh, actual stuff and also a separate registry where you could donate to send us on a honeymoon. And that was a pain in the neck. What I like about Zola is that it's a one-stop shop for everything that you're, that folks might um, need to support you on your wedding day. And guess what else? You can also use the Zola wedding app on your iPhone or Android. Wow. <laughs> Just head over to the Zola.com website and check out what they've got to offer, you can join over 500,000 couples who've used Zola. Sign up with Zola and receive a $50 credit towards your registry using Zola.com slash query. That's Zola, Z-O-L-A dot com slash query for $50 towards your registry. That's right. You could get a blender and some money to take your honeymoon all in the same place. But I, you know, I also know like just a little bit about you and I know that you have a really interesting story also in terms of like kind of using your skills to put yourself in a, in a really good position. Like I know about your college experience, for instance, mm-hmm. that like you're a ball player, yeah. you're a basketball player mm-hmm. uh, and used that to get yourself into a like pretty decent college. <laughs> <laughs> Where'd you go to school? Uh, I went to Yale. Yeah, you went to Yale, but to play basketball. Yep. And, I mean, I don't know. This is something that people are talking about a lot now. Like, being a student athlete, to, like, get yourself to that school and go through school like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, worth it? Impossible? Awful? Oh, it's the worst. <laughs> uh, student athletes really get screwed over heavily. <laughs> um... You know, I'd recommend it. I think that it's important to go to a school that where if you stop doing whatever your sport is, that you'll still like it. And I think that when I was choosing schools, that's what ended up making Yale the choice for me. Uh, even though in my mind I was like, I'll never stop playing basketball. <laughs> and then I ended up quitting my junior year and then still had like took up another sport. I started playing rugby, um, got more into theater got more into, like, all the other things that had been promised to me for going to Yale that weren't actually a possibility once I got there and the basketball coach was an absolute nightmare. Mm. <laughs> so, Why did you step away from... from basketball? Be, be, yeah, because of your coach? Um, well, really, I had an injury mm. that required a surgery that I didn't want to have. I, like, messed up my foot. Uh, and they basically were like, to play at this level, you'll need to have this surgery, but there's no guarantee that it will make it better. In fact, it might make it worse. And I was like, at that point, I hadn't been able to, like, walk without pain for, like, eight months or something. And it sort of was like, okay, I think I want to be able to, like, walk when I'm 35. And so I'm going to take a step back from this. And so I didn't have the surgery, and then I, like, couldn't really play at that level anymore. How was that? 
identity wise? Because I I know like if you're an athlete playing at that level, mm-hmm. that's a huge part of who you are as a person. Yeah, I mean it's a full time job, and it had been, you know, it was something I was doing like six days out of the week from the time I was like eleven or something, um, and I I think I adjusted well. Like I think I because I like stuck around the team until the end of my junior year. And so I still had that like community, still had that those friendships and then found other things to like fill my time. So it wasn't like I just stopped and didn't have anything going for me. I still had so many other things to pursue and get interested in. So that was lucky. And I think it was because of the place that I was at. Mm. So. Yeah. How did you, when did you, when did you start playing baseball? Age? Um, Seven. Yeah, I think I started when I was like five because I broke my arm. My my parents, my par- I know, little sweetie, learning how to ride a bike. I jumped off my bike. My well, I was learning how to ride a bike, and my dad didn't tell me anything about brakes. Mm. So I was just like, I'm doing it, and then was like taking off away from him, and then was like, How do I? And then just jumped off the bike and broke my arm in two places, and then it was also ready. My mom's birthday, so we, so he was like. I'll be back in five minutes, and then we'll go out for your birthday. And he literally came home with, like, his child, just, like, my arm just, like, hanging off. And he was like, sorry. (laughs) In fact, I just fully crushed her entire arm. Oh, my goodness. Um, But then I was just – I had nothing to do, so they got me a basketball. And so I broke my right arm, so I actually learned how to play basketball with my left, which is weird because I'm a righty. So I still shoot left-handed. Wow. What? Can you believe it? That's impressive. What an interesting person I am. Ambidextrous. (laughs) (laughs) But you started at seven. How did you get into it? My uncle played and my dad played. My whole family basically played. But my uncle was living with us uh, and he was on his high school basketball team. And my dad was coaching that team. And so I would like go to the games all the time and just start dribbling around. And then I start playing with all the boys that like lived on my block. And what did they think of you? I think I don't – some of these questions, it's like I played sports forever. Mm-hmm. I was super-duper, like, big athlete, uh, high school and college. But mm-hmm. I was never, like, so good that I would have gone to college to – like, I wouldn't have been recruited and stuff. And I, mm-hmm. I don't know what that experience is like to be playing with boys right. and you're, like, good. Yeah. <laughs> like, real good. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was just, like, one of the boys. <laughs> They're just, like, they didn't – really treat me any differently. When I started getting treated differently, it was weird. Because even in fifth and sixth grade, we played on the boys' team. And so it was, like, me and one other girl and then all boys. And I think maybe, like, two other girls total in, like, the whole league. Uh, Because there just isn't – there wasn't any developmental leagues for, like, girls. People just, like, don't (laughs) – Treat girls the same way they treat boys. Surprise, surprise. Well, I can't. What? Wait. But like regionally, where was this? Because this can't be nationwide. No. Um, so you were in like this development league, and then when you said you noticed it, that them them treating you different. Um, basically, when everyone started to like develop, uh-huh. and people, you know, little boys started to get horny, and then there was like a change in how I was treated. Because then, like seventh and eighth grade, uh, you get. The gym class divided by gender, and so then the boys would always be doing, like, all the shit that I wanted to do. Like, they were playing football and playing basketball and playing baseball, and then we're playing, like, snakes in the grass. (laughs) And, like... (laughs) I don't know who that is, but yes! (laughs) Absolutely. It's when you're on the, like, scooters, and then you, like, scoot around and have to, like, tag people. Oh, my God. And we were doing, like, aerobics. Oh, no! Okay, yeah, I mean... My actual my 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 gym class my PE was never divided like by sex. Mm. We always just played like non sports together, like pickleball. Like mm-hmm. that's not a real sport. Why are we playing this? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but that's really interesting. What you're talking about, like mm-hmm. kind of giving the sports that we that are like <laughs> on our television to some people, and then yeah. other people have to <laughs> snakes in the grass. <laughs> And then we play, like, badminton and volleyball. And we did have, like, a basketball section, but it was just, like, they get to play the real sports. And they're, like, being competitive with each other. And we're, like, learning the rules Mm. and playing very toned-down, polite versions of the game. 
Were you still playing like outside of school with dudes? Yeah. And then, like, on Fridays, we would have free period, and then that's when, like, the girls and boys were allowed to, like, intermingle, and it would always just be, like, the closeted gay kid would come over to, like, the girl side, and then, like, I would go over to the boy side and play basketball, and that was the extent of the intermingling. What kind of school is this? It's a public school. And I know this, but I'm going to ask for Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? I'm from Chicago. We used to live on Kenzie and Madison on the west side. And I went to school on 109th and Troop when I was growing up, which is on the south side. Then we moved to South Holland, and I went to high school at Thornwood, which is in South Holland, right by River Oaks Mall. <laughs> <laughs> I, like the, I like the directions. That's, like, nice. It's like you got to go to the Taco Bell, then you turn left. <laughs> uh, that's a— Couple. Wait, so South Holland is in Michigan, yes? Am I nuts? Where's South mm. Holland? It's, it's in like, Illinois? It's like 10 minutes south of the city. It's Where like a, like the city ends at like 130th, it's and next... South Holland is in is on 159th. Oh, so you weren't moving very far. No. You had like the same group of friends, essentially, maybe? Uh, I mean, just like they depended on what school I went to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair. Okay. And then you uh, are playing basketball. You're playing with dudes outside of school. What's happening for you like – in terms of the way kids are perceiving you? Like, how's your life kind of in general at school? Um, well, I went, I switched from private school to public school, and that's, like, when the big shift happened. Because I went to uh, the private school that was 109th and Troop, and it was, like, all black except for one white guy who we call White Mike. <laughs> Honestly, though, like straight up, how is White Mike? Like, I wish I knew. I feel like I wish I knew because this is what I've learned from Facebook uh, about the white kids who have to go to schools that are like predominantly black. They either are like very with it and like I have white privilege, even though I was in this environment. I have white privilege. I care even more about these people because I grew up with them, and now most of my relationships are like still with this group of people, even though I recognize that I am still different, or like, fuck black people. <laughs> like, I hate this. I can't believe my parents made me grow up like this. Oh, my God. I should have been in power, but I was like the weird white kid. How oh. dare I have a minority experience? Oh, my gosh. So, yeah. it's funny. So, I don't know. White Mike's either the best or the worst. <laughs> right. we're, hoping, we're hoping the best. We're hoping the best. We're hoping the best. Uh, and then I switched to a public school. Uh, which was still mostly black, but had more white kids than just white Mike. Um, and I got to, like, dress myself for the first time. Because at private school, you we, you know, the guys wore the sh- blue sh- button-ups and slacks. And the girls wore, like, jumpers. And I never even thought about it. It's just one of those things where, like, you don't question it because you've never had the opportunity to question it. Totally. So when I got to put clothes on myself, I was like, I know what I'm wearing. <laughs> And so I was just, like, wearing, like, the boys' shorts at that time. The style was, like, the long blue jean shorts. And, like, we didn't I, we didn't have that much money for, like, school shopping, so I got to pick out, like, three outfits or something. And so I got, like, three pairs of those shorts and then, like, Nike shirts and, like, and one shirts or whatever. And then I wore, like, a lot of my mom's, like, old clothes, which were so big on me. So I either look, like, ridiculous right. in women's clothing or, like, comfortable in men's clothing uh, or little boys' clothing, I guess. And I got called a lesbian in, like, my first week at this school by, like, two of the little white boys. Wait, how old would you have been, do you think? I was 10. 10? I was 10, and we were, like, out in the field, and I I don't know what the fuck I was doing. I don't know why I was by myself in the middle of this field, but for some reason I was, and they just, like, rolled up to me and were like, you're lesbian. I don't even know if I knew. I think I must have known what it meant. But I certainly hadn't contextualized myself in that way. I also had French braids. So I was, like, being like, okay, they are calling me this because you have on these clothes and because your hair looks like this. Um, And then it just, like, stuck with me for, like, the rest of the year. And I didn't really dress like that the next year. I, like, still wore clothes that were comfortable to me and not, like, super femmy or girly or anything. But I, I... immediately like sort of stopped shopping in the little boy section. Wow. I mean, now that you bring it up, it's it's totally true. I was like saved by Catholic school in the, on- the only way in which I was saved <laughs> by Catholic school uh, was that I wore like a uniform till I was 18. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like from 
from like six or seven or whatever yeah. to 18. So like it definitely got – in high school, it, <laughs> there was definitely a trajectory where like freshman year I wore knee socks mm-hmm. and like Steve Madden platforms with a skirt. And then by senior year I wore white platform steel-toed Doc Martens <laughs> <laughs> with only pants <laughs> and had a black eye for a lot of the year because I had dropped a pool ball on my face. Throwing it over my head. It doesn't matter. But my point is, there was like a, for sure, like a real spectrum Mm -hmm. in presentation. Um, But I do think that like, if you're a queer kid that's like trying to hide what's happening for you, like Mm -hmm. having a uniformed uniformity around you can can for sure benefit you. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know like what I would have. And then like outside of school, I was only wearing like giant t-shirts with a dog on it with like red (laughs) jeans. I mean, like that's a... An outfit I remember. Yeah. So I don't – I think that that probably saved me quite a bit of being made fun of. Yeah. But, like, if you were making – if you were – so if you were going back, like, what would be the difference? So, so like, those – I know the shorts you're talking about. So, like, from those, mm-hmm. like, what – like, on the spectrum, what would be, like, the thing you were trying next? Like, what in the – if you're, like, not gir- – that's super girly, but, like, what stuff? Like, a, like long girls shorts? Um, Girls in air like- quotes? jeans that didn't have like flowers on them which was by the way straight up hard to find hard to find in the 90s yes like legitimately a hunt in the 90s and 2000s. i just i remember i would just like go to stores and it would be like so close to like being fine with me i'd find like a flannel shirt and i'd be like oh, here we go guys <laughs> right. and then there'd just be like a ribbon tying it up in the back and i'm like why is this even here i still feel like that's true i still feel like sometimes i'll be like oh my god a menswear vest with some amount of space for a bosom oh great and then on the back it just says like i'm a girl that likes to date boys it just like says that in script how why what the hell this is a business outfit. Why'd you write that on there? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I was just wearing like sort of the plainest jeans I could find. And then like a lot of like crew neck sweatshirts or just like Nike tees. Just kept that part. Um, and wore my hair in like a ponytail, not braids as much. But then eventually I went back to the braids. They were too good. You have good, did you have good, you had good French braids? I had good French braids. Iverson was big. <laughs> right. That's the other thing. It's like when sort of things would like come into play that like made it okay, where it just like stopped sort of being a signal. Mm. Whereas like before that, French braids, you would look like a little boy and you couldn't do it. But then Iverson got big and sort of like everyone was wearing French braids. So it was like fine again. So it was like, ha ha. I'm, I'm just one of those. In plain sight. I'm exactly. I just like Alan Iverson. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, I also, you know, um, having some bit of sportiness can really help, too, because Mm -hmm. then if you're somebody who wants to wear Nike stuff and you're like, but like legit, I (laughs) do Nike in the world. I do go out at Nike. (laughs) Like, I think that that can also help for uh, queer kids who are cultured female, like queer kids who are like being Mm -hmm. raised as women and just like. Well, no, I'm not like that. Yeah. I'm just a baller. I'm right, just exactly. Like, I just love basketball or like, she's a, she's a tomboy. She'll grow out of mm-hmm. it. Like sort of all of that protection, which is also just like denial and ended up hurting me way more than it helped probably because it was just like, oh, we all have to prove we're not gay because now the assumption is since we're girls that play basketball and enjoy like aggression and competitiveness and being good at things, which are these quote-unquote masculine traits, we now have to, like, push against all of that to prove that we are, like, straight and feminine and all these things. Yeah. Yeah, dude. Yeah, for real. I mean, I guess I didn't... I guess I didn't, like, have that... Well, so the whole time I was playing basketball, like, in high school, I had a boyfriend, Mm -hmm. so that also really helps you out. Yeah. Um, so I guess I wasn't thinking that much about like proving my, but is that something that you felt like you were thinking about that consciously? Like now that I'm in this category of people, I'm a basketball player. Mm -hmm. Like I have to disprove this thing people assume about me. Yeah. Hmm. We're, we're, which of course, who knows how much everyone else was feeling that, but I was feeling it a lot because it was true and I couldn't admit it to myself that it was true. And I also didn't want it to be like, 
I didn't want other people to have the power over, like, who I am, where they got to decide before I even got to decide. Right. And that's, I think, really what it felt like of, like, no, I need to, like, discover this on my own. I need to, like, be empowered to, like, go on my own journey, to learn that I'm queer. I can't, like, it's not fair that you tell me and then I either have to accept it or push against it until I come to this realization. So what was your high school experience like in terms of, like, friendships or, like, stuff you were into? Was it very basketball-dominated? Were you doing other stuff? Like, what was your experience Um, like? Yeah, it was very basketball-dominated. I was doing, like, sort of the other extracurriculars extracurriculars here and there because, you know, trying to build up your college resume and all that sort of thing. Um, But it was mostly just the girls from my basketball team and then the girls from my club basketball team. So it was like I had friends at other schools, but it was all basketball-related. And all the boys that I hung out with were athletes, too. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because you were, like, good. You were, like, yeah. universally regarded as good. So Yeah, and you, in Chicago, there's, like, definitely a culture of that, of, like, you know all the other good players. Mm-hmm. You, and even with relationship stuff, it's like, oh, then, like, sort of it's cute when the, like— Guy from this school who's, like, really great at basketball pairs up with the girl from this school who's really good at basketball and then love and basketball. I was just going to say, are you telling me love and basketball is real? (laughs) I did not know. I watched that as, like, a fantasy, being like, this is so beautiful. I did not know that is a real. (laughs) Yeah, people were really trying to make it happen. Okay, all right. And that was, that became sort of my uh, way of dealing with it within myself. Again, now I can look back and be like, ah, oh, yes, you dork. That is why you were doing all yeah, of these things. Sure. But back then it was like, oh, yeah, I'll just be like flirty with this guy from our rival high school. And everyone will be like, LOL, they're so funny and cute. Ha, ha, ha. But I never have to see this person or do any. Like I can go to the movie with them once a month and that's enough to like throw people off the scent or yeah, whatever. F- friend, I get it. <laughs> Devout Catholicism will help you with that, too. If you're like, honestly, I can't have sex because I just can't. Because, like, Jesus. <laughs> can't, I can't. Mm-hmm. That J- Jesus is the equivalent of, a, of, of somebody goes to a different school. <laughs> There's the same thing. Today's episode of Query is sponsored by Tomboy X. Oh, Queeros, Tomboy X is a great undies brand. I really like their underwear. Uh, We wear them in my house because they have a bunch of different styles that make different folks with different bods and different gender identities feel comfy. They've got Tomboy X has everything from bikinis, briefs, boxer briefs, trunks, boy shorts to soft bras and racerback bras. They've got Everyday basic colors, fun seasonal prints. They go from sizes extra small to 4X. Wherever you fall on the size or gender spectrum, Tomboy X has amazing undies that can fit anybody. Now, if you head over to tomboyx.com slash query, you can check out some special bundles, but also you could receive 50, 15% off when you use the code query. That's right. Use the code query to buy undies at Tomboy X and you'll get 15% off. Tomboyx.com slash query. So were you like recruited to play on the um, travel team and stuff that you played on? Or like how? Um, there was a, we, I tried out in eighth grade. Yeah. So it was like this big Adidas team in Chicago called Hoops Express. And then. And by the way, love the name. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> and then they had like sort of a junior version um, where you could try out. And then if you were good enough from that team, then it like fed into this older team. And so since I was like really good in eighth grade, I was like playing on that team and also playing on like the upper team or whatever. What is it like being you have these really close relationships with women and like you have all this going on inside of you? Intense. I can – I mean, please tell me more. <laughs> please tell me more. Um, I mean, because it was just, we were all so close because you literally would be with them like Saturdays and Sundays. We would have practice for like three hours for us on the younger team. We would have like practice with our team for two hours and then we would go practice with the other team for two hours. So that's like your whole weekend is just with these girls in the summer. We're practicing all the time. We're traveling 
to other states and staying in hotel rooms together mm-hmm. where we're sharing beds. Uh-huh. Uh, and so, like, I'm sure there are other people. I mean, it's just crazy to think back to, like, what was probably going on that I was not privy to. Like, people were for sure, like, hooking up and kissing and everyone's a fucking closet case. But everyone's in love with each other. And everyone's making out. And I was just, like, so by the rules and by the book and, like, I don't want anyone to think this about me, even though I'm clearly in love with my best friend and everyone can see it and no one knows how to talk about it. So it was just, like, intense. And I couldn't admit it to myself. And so I just had, like, one weird friendship that, like, sort of went off the rails for a little bit because, like, we just all couldn't, like, no one could deal with what Mm. was happening. Yeah. Even though nothing physically ever happened. Right. I mean, I've, I had I had that friendship a couple times mm-hmm. in my life. That, yeah, like, I had it in college. <laughs> yeah. Although, I mean, for me, it, those people that you had that friendship with, uh, the other side, queer? Mm-mm. Yeah, me neither. And we've talked about that, actually. <laughs> I know that. Yeah, so, which is also interesting, because, mm-hmm. like, I don't know. I don't know how much... I don't know how much of this played into it for you, but for me, I know I was also like, I don't, I had no conscious awareness of what was going on, mm-hmm. except that there was like some part of me that didn't want to make somebody uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And so the yes, I, the same. idea that I knew there was something I could do that m- could make somebody uncomfortable was that, that was the full extent of my awareness. Mm-hmm. I didn't even like know what that was. Right. Just there's like something I could do that here. Yeah. <laughs> there's something I could do here. Mm-hmm. Don't know what it is. Yeah. Um, yeah, the moment I think that even started to come into play was my best friend was, like, sleeping over, as she did, like, all the time, and we were in the basement, lying on my couch, like, watching a scary movie, like, both lying down and, like, spooning and cuddling, and then my dad came down the stairs, and when he came down the stairs, we, like, jumped as if we'd been doing something, and then he, like, sort of left. And in my mind, I was like, why did we jump like we were doing something if what we're doing is fine? Right. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, this is something I should feel shame about. This is something I just tried to, like, hide from someone, even though on the surface it's not nothing romantic is supposed to be happening. And we're two girls, so, like, what what could we even be doing? Man, that's so interesting. I mean, my, my version of that is actually, like, always alone I for – like a similar reason, I would like rent movies that I I wasn't allowed to watch, like Ellen or like anything gay, mm-hmm. um, or like Rosie. Like post their coming out, mm-hmm. there was like not a lot in my house. And then one time, my dad came in and I was watching the MTV Movie Awards, and it was when, um, uh, oh my god, Selma Blair and Buffy. <laughs> I hate myself. Sarah Michelle Gellar. Okay, kissed. Mm-hmm. They like. One for best kiss, and they kissed, and my dad, like, walked in the back door from work at the moment when they were kissing. And mm-hmm. I, it was, like—I mean, it was MTV, right. which, by the way, we had, like, just gotten cable because we weren't allowed to, like, have cable. And I literally think he was, like, well, like, no reason yeah. for us to have cable. I was literally, like, ah! Like, Dad, this is literally never on. Mm-hmm. This is never on. There's never women kissing. But um, so I would, like, rent movies. Mm-hmm. And watch them in the basement by myself that were like that had like queer content. Yeah. I don't even know how I was finding these movies. Like, like movies in the that like walking around blockbuster video and then coming home with like all over me. Like, where right. did I find that? Where yeah. was I? How did you get that? How info? did I get that movie? Is it just a great poster? And you were I, like, I know what's happening here. I think so I just, uh, yeah, and then watch those movies by myself in the basement. Yeah, we had the blockbuster pass. This was like, and you know, when blockbuster was really throwing everything at the wall trying to stay in business. They were doing this thing where you could check out two movies and just, like, keep them for as long as you wanted. And I would be at my dad's. My parents, like, got divorced when I was, like, nine or something. And a lot of the times I would be at my dad's with him and my stepmom and my two youngest half-brothers, and the rest of my siblings would be at my mom's. I had to stay for, like, basketball and stuff. And we would go to Blockbuster, and they would pick out a movie for them, and I would get to pick out a movie for me. And it was always, I don't, and the same, like the internet was a little further along, but I know I wasn't getting this information from the internet. But I remember 13 came out and I was just like, I gotta fucking get this movie. <laughs> and I never could pull the trigger because I was so scared that they knew that the only reason I wanted to see it is because I'd heard that the girls in the movie kissed. And so every time I would like pick it up, Immediately, as soon as I got in, I would like make a beeline, like pick it up. Today's the day, gonna do it. And every time I would put it back, 
and get like sideways have or you, something. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen it since? I still haven't seen it. You now know it what? just feels creepy. No, I I mean, number one, you're absolutely right. But I want you to treat yourself to at some point in your life watching 13. Just so that like, like you don't have to have the same feelings about it because that is creepy. Yeah. But then also know that those women are like adults now. Right, like, yeah. like, no, like keep the, like, keep all the context in mind. You know what I mean? I don't want you to, don't get yourself into, don't fall. Yeah. But I just, I want you to have that. Uh-huh, I want you yeah. to have nice things. Mm-hmm. Um, so then you're in high school and you, did you got, you got recruited for college. Yes. Mm-hmm. So like, what is that experience? Like people wanting you to come to their school? Cause for me, college was very much like, I'm applying to school mm-hmm. and I hope to God that they want me. What is it like the other way? Uh, again, stressful. Again, it feels like so much pressure. Again, being a student athlete is very stressful. Yeah, <laughs> because I mean, for that whole from that whole time, like once I started playing seriously in eighth grade or whatever, that's what it was all about was getting a scholarship. And so you're going to all these places explicitly with this goal in mind, and you start getting attention from you know. And first of all, it's just an entirely weird process to just have adults. Pursuing children. Literally, I was 13. And I'm having people, like, write handwritten letters to me to, like, show that they care about me and are invested in who I am as a person. Because also, I think, with at least basketball, I can't speak for other sports, there's this, like, weird thing of, like, we're going to, like, make you into the best person that you can be in college. Like, it's not just about basketball. It's about we're building a human. We're building a responsible adult. And so, like, all of that weird language is being incorporated into this thing that's like, you're great at basketball, and I think you're cool. Man, that is weird. So I just would – I just had, like, huge, like, plastic containers of just, like, letters from all these different schools starting from when I was eighth grade and trying to figure out what matters to you, I think, is, like, what people's – other people's college experience gets to be of like, I'm going to go to the school where like the school size matters and where it is matters. And if they offer a program that I'm interested in pursuing matters. And with basketball, you're just like, who wants me the most and who's going to like give me playing time and who like has other students from like my neighborhood so that I know that they like understand how to relate to like a young black person who came from like a black neighborhood. Like those are the sorts of questions you start asking yourself when you're that age and they're just like, it's really intense and it's hard to know that about yourself and to have to judge that about adults. Like it's, it's a lot to be like, Oh, is this like older white person going to be able to treat me with respect? Is like something you have to guess at. I guess wrong, but it turned out fine. Yeah, I mean, I just, you know, I ask also partially because it's like, here you are, this person that's like either like got a secret that is at some level. Like it's like it might not be you're actively aware of like the full mm-hmm. sentence that is the secret, but like yeah. you know there's something going on. You're pushing that down. Mm-hmm. And then in the midst of that having like in- interest – from somebody like outside your family like that, you know, mm-hmm. like, like it just seems like a lot to, to go through as a kid to try to like, you're trying so hard to keep your shit together when you're a queer person, mm-hmm. when you're not out, when you're like a young person and, and being patrolled by peers, like about your outfits or whatever, like yeah. you're, you're so trying so hard to keep your shit together. <laughs> I can't imagine that. Like if on top of that, people were like, Hey, by the way, like, <laughs> I really think you've got something for me. Like to me, that just seems like such a weird, um, so it just seems so weird. Yeah. yeah. And then going to these places with these people who you're then being told, oh, well, you know, those schools aren't going to recruit gay people. So, like, don't try to look too gay. Really? Yeah. How much? Or don't look too black. Okay. So. So, like, which one of those things do you think you get more or the exact same amount? Uh, I think there was just more an effort. There was definitely more effort not to seem gay, I think. And, like, okay, so – do you is there like specific examples of like what that would feel like were you getting like actual information like this is what well yeah i think you would get feedback when you would do it because i think there and even other players patrolling themselves like there was one girl i remember who 
And this was, like, I think the only time that it felt like, you know, people were are like, it wasn't a good, like, culture fit. Mm. Like, that's what it felt like when this girl came to play for Hoops Express and she just was, like, oh, like overtly masculine in a way that none of us were comfortable being yet. Like, she just, like, owned it. And she just, like, this is how I am. And it was it played into, like, her mannerisms on the court and, like, the way that she interacted with people, the way that she spoke. And just everyone was like, oh, no. We, wow. Well, you're going to you're gonna pull the wool off of all of us if you do this. So we can't like this. And it was, like, really, it just made me, like, sort of shrink more into myself because I was like, oh, well, that's what happens if you do it. Yeah. Is that no one likes you. Um, and then I remember like one time it was, you know, sagging was in and just like baggier clothes were in. And I just like was wearing a bigger pair of shorts than I usually wore. And like my stepmom was like, Why are you, what are you doing? You look like a boy. Stop. Like go put different shorts on. And it's just like little moments like that that stick with you forever and completely change how you move through the world and how you see yourself. And then getting information uh, like about recruiting specifically or all that about like being too black, like what mm-hmm. would that look like? Is that hair? Is that like, like no mannerisms? Ta- don't get tattoos. Um, how you wear your headband. Like there was this really big divide about people wearing headbands versus people wearing like the pre-wrap. Oh, yeah. No, I totally know what you mean. Yeah. Um even, like, if you wore your headband to the side or if you wore, like, the Adidas sign upside down, you don't want people to think that it's a gang sign. And just, like, stuff like that. Don't wear a hat in the gym. Jeez. And all of that is because you have talent. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the other thing that's, like, so <laughs> fucked up about it. It's, like, you are good mm-hmm. at something. So, therefore, like, don't fuck it up with the oh, wrong God. headband. That, like, I just mean, like, what the fuck? Me in high school was just entirely being like, don't fuck this up, don't fuck this up, don't fuck this up. It was That was the majority of my personality was, like, as soon as, like, anything seemed to arrive, I was like, peace out, guys. I got to go to college. <laughs> like, I just was not having it. Do you still have any part of that in you today? Like oh, that, yeah. That feeling that you might fuck someone up? Mm-hmm. What do you do to keep that at bay? Um, I think I've just, like, sort of developed my own secular morality to be, like, at this point, I know what's right and what's wrong. And f- trust myself to, like, make those decisions from for me and not base it on like what other people think or even what the laws of the land are because those are often incorrect. Yeah. How did you come up with those? How did you come up with that like framework? Um, I don't know. I'm reading a lot, talking a lot, going to college, having hard conversations, having conversations now that I look back and I'm like, what you used to think was very embarrassing. Just like <laughs> being an adult in the world and interacting with other people and coming coming up against things and being like, okay, I think for the most part, the right thing is just what isn't going to hurt other people. Right. So. Uh, that is a far-fetched idea that I think could just work. <laughs> <laughs> well, I also know just a little bit about you that you also are like pretty engaged as a listener you're like pretty into uh or like good at um well at least that's like what my work experience with you was like that you were like sitting in a room uh taking things in and responding Mm -hmm. which i think is also a skill if you're trying to figure out how to do the right thing Mm -hmm. it's a skill that i it's very hard for me (laughs) I have to work on listening all the time. Mm-hmm. So I just grew up in a place where it's like you had to fought to be you had to fight to be heard mm-hmm. in my family. So I'm just like always like, No, yeah. this is and so now I, you know, I know as an adult that especially with the job that I have, right. where my job is speaking for a living, like I have to take in information as much as I can because otherwise I'm like fucked. You mm-hmm. you can't actually uh come up with like hard and fast rules that you live with forever. Right. So it's death to stand up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think I was fighting for my own voice for all of it. Because I'm the oldest of seven. So there really was, you had to talk loud if you wanted someone to listen. And I think I just didn't want anyone to listen. Like I just was quiet. And it wasn't from shyness. It was just like, I don't think I have anything important to like say right now. I'm not really comfortable with who I am. And that's one of the things that's changed the most about me as an adult, I think, is 
I am comfortable with myself now, and so I am comfortable having opinions and taking up space in the world. And I already had the skill of listening because I just was shutting up for so long. And so now it's, like, sort of easy to balance the two, I guess. Well, you're cool. I like this conversation. (laughs) It was just really interesting to hear all this. This is, like, something we haven't talked about at all, and I, I like, loved the— just understanding more about what it was like for you growing up. Mm-hmm. And I know you're going to do awesome things. Oh, thank you. Mm, I believe it very truly. And um, before we sign off for this sesh, mm-hmm. for this chat sesh, yeah, I just wanted to see if you want to shout out a queero. So like a friend or person or human or thing, stranger, that made you feel comfortable in who you are? Um, I'll, and this is, I guess it's even conflicted in doing this, but when I was in college, two of my coaches were queer, and since it was, like, not a safe space to be queer, even the fact that I knew that looking back now, I think, helped me a lot. They also left after my freshman year because, as I said, the head coach was a nightmare. Um... But my coach, Melinda Flores, was like a queer woman of color. And I think the first queer woman of color that was out and older than me that I had a relationship with and a bond with helped a lot. It really does matter so much. Mm-hmm. I mean, my first boss um, out of college was <laughs> – I was in this program and you weren't supposed to date other people in the program. Mm-hmm. And – it was like a equivalent of Teach for America sort of a thing, but we lived in community with each other. So that's why you weren't supposed to date because they didn't want to deal with breakups and then people having to live in the same place. Yeah. So it wasn't like for any other reason than just like, please don't do this to us. <laughs> From an HR perspective, we yeah. don't want you to have to move rooms all the time. Yeah. Um, but I started dating one of my roommates. And cool. Yes. And was also like not, you know— like, anyway, this was not okay. This was, like, f- full-on breaking, like, basically the only rule. Right. <laughs> it was like, don't do this. And, uh, but my boss, when she, we, so she, like, called us in for our meeting, and instead of, like, firing us, <laughs> just came out to us. <laughs> <laughs> and was like, I have to move you into different rooms because mm-hmm. we can't, like, house you while you're dating. Like, that's just, like, right. too much liability for the program. Yeah. But, um... She didn't, like, forcibly break us up or or punish us at all. And then, in fact, um, like, ended up being a huge mentor to me. Because it it just, like, I think that she realized that this, like, rule that applied to a lot of people, like, maybe shouldn't apply to the only two lesbians in the program who, like, (laughs) literally were grasping onto each other for dear life, you know? Like, and that if we, that we had, you know, we had, like, a need for each other. Yeah. So she (laughs) just was, like, straight up. Like not like not okay to live together, but like nice that your family. I was like, you're kidding me. <laughs> that was a great twist. Mm-hmm. It's like the perfect, yeah, the perfect twist. Mm-hmm. It's like a made up twist, but it is my actual real life. Yeah. <laughs> well, Brittany, you're uh, great for coming in today. Thank you so much for this conversation. No, oh, thanks for having me. And where and tell folks tell folks where they can find Suicide Kill. You can find it on Amazon. It's on Prime. So if you have Prime, you can watch it for free. You can also just rent it on Amazon, uh, Vimeo, and iTunes, and Seed and Spark. Yeah, and I want to, and it's Kale, like K A L E, so that you know what we're talking about. Cool. All right. Moi. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. 
Hey, this is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season three has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, season three is a great jumping on point, and we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Eight nuts. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen <coughs> me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins yeah. has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. <laughs> Oh. Jesus! I mean, Jazos! <laughs> ruler of the Eighth Circle! And that's just the beginning. Season 3 of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.